Hello, and welcome to the third episode of Multiscale Musings, a podcast from the HETSIS CDT at the University of Warwick. I am your host, Chris Woodgate. This week, my co-host is Kat Blow. Kat is a HETSIS student based in the physics department whose project involves using molecular dynamics to study crystal nucleation rates. This week, we have something a little different for you, an interview with Dr. Chris Brady and Dr. Heather Ratcliffe two of Warwick's research software engineers. They both work in collaboration with academics to produce high-quality scientific software for use in research. Chris completed his PhD in solar physics at Warwick before holding a number of positions related to scientific computing. He was Warwick's first RSE, joining in 2017. Heather holds a PhD from the University of Glasgow in solar physics. She held a few postdoctoral research positions before moving to Warwick's RSE group in mid-2017. Okay then. Hello everyone. Hello. Hello. So Chris and Heather are research software engineers. Um, The first kind of section of the podcast is uh, uh, focused on sort of more personal questions, finding finding out about you and your interests. Um, So a question to both of you really. um, What sort of things do you do when you're not doing doing science, when you're not writing software? What are your hobbies and, and how do you relax? Um, okay, so I spend a lot of time in the gym, generally. Um, I took up uh, powerlifting during my PhD, which I love. Okay. Because it is, it's a lot easier to stand up and give a presentation when you know you've stood on a platform instead of a bunch of people wearing a lycra suit and made the weirdest faces. Seriously, I recommend <laughs> But no, so a lot of gym time, other stuff. We've got a nice garden. Um, I think you... Um, me, well, I mean, my answer, we're going to go straight from the perhaps slightly unexpected to the tremendously, um, tremendously predictable. I, I, I'm a gamer. I play computer games a lot. So pretty much working from home, it's OK, end of the day, I close that window and I open that window instead. Um, so that one's pretty expected, I suspect. Um, but, you know, I, uh, I, we both like cooking is perhaps one yeah. slightly unexpected thing. You know, we, we try to. Make sure that we cook interesting food. We make a n- okay. naan bread pizza. We do. Oh. We definitely recommend that to anyone who's listening. <laughs> and you say you say you play video games, Chris. What's your what's your favourite video game at the moment then, or do you have a few that are on the go at the same time? I almost always have a few that are on the go. Um, at the moment, the one I'm mostly playing, I I finally got a copy of Mass Effect Andromeda. I was a big fan of the original um, three Mass Effect games, but I delayed a while with Andromeda because it is quite different. But I got it, and it's good fun, and I'm playing through that at the minute. Ah, cool. Okay, then. So, so maybe, maybe, maybe some kind of some, something a bit more, uh, a bit more abstract, then. Um, do you have, uh, if, we, if, we, if we were to ask you anything... Is there is there some skill that you that that you perhaps like to acquire one day, like to learn, or something that you'd like to be better at? Ooh, tricky. Um, I've always wanted to be a bit better at doing kind of woodwork stuff, just because we've got a relatively nice but relatively old house going on, and uh, well, our attempts to fix things tend to come out a little bit hammer and tongs. Okay. Just, uh, just just add some nails. It'll stay up. It'll be fine. <laughs> it has character. Yep. This house has a lot of character. Yes. It started as a farmer's cottage in the 30s and is now quite a lot bigger than that. So it's got a lot of character. But yeah. Um, no. Probably manual skills of various kinds. I've always wanted to learn to weld. 
Yeah. Just just to add to the bizarre collection of hobbies. Yeah, I mean, for me, I've done a lot of things. Um, probably the thing that I, I tried doing but was never especially good at and I would like to be better at, oddly, would be kayaking. You know, we did that at school and I wasn't bad at it. Um, but Heather's family, of course, have a sort of history. Yeah, my mother was brief. Uh, she competed for the university's um, canoe association, whitewater kayaking. Um, so that's something I'd love to be better at. But yeah, I could teach you. You could, but they've she just could put. Beat you. Oh, absolutely. Probably with a paddle. Yeah. But, <laughs> um, yeah. But um, but they have in fact just put a giant boom across the most interesting bit of the river, so it's a bit hard at the minute. A little bit tricky, yeah. <laughs> Oh dear, and and I know, and I well, I we know that you've mentioned you have hedgehogs, or you had hedgehogs. I and I know Cat wants to find out a little bit about that, maybe. I, I'm desperate to to know more about the hedgehogs. Okay, so we're in we're quite close to sort of fields and forests, so it's relatively rural. Um, and last year we spotted at least one full-grown hedgehog, and then in around October, I think, we spotted one that we thought looked. Pretty healthy, but quite small. But he was out in the day, and it's sort of this is strange. So we looked it up, and apparently, often in a mild year, they have two litters, and the oh. second litter are still tiny in October, November, um, and they don't get fat enough to hibernate. So we picked this guy up in the middle of the rugby. We had to stop the rugby uh, and drove him over to a, a hedgehog rescuer, and we thought, well done, we've sorted it out. He was tiny and out in the day and disturbed. And then about a week later, we found another one. <laughs> um, so clearly oh, been this, this litter of babies. But the other one, we, we got back in the spring. We released him in the garden. He comes back and eats food. Um, um, the first one, however, released himself because he got bored of being a captive. And in the spring, he dug his way out of the rabbit run he was held in and, uh, and had it away. So, yeah, they're wild. Um, but... Well, it's nice to put out some food and some water for them because they are a little bit in, not endangered, but on the decline. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And, yeah. Uh, well, they're, they're kind of cute. I didn't realise how furry they were. Yeah, and we've set up, you know, networks of uh, infrared, active infrared cameras around the place yeah. so we can see them at night, which is always fun. Yeah. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. OK, then. So, so maybe, maybe let's let's move on a little bit and start talking uh, more about science and, and software and so on. So, so our, our first kind of opening question um, is is really about kind of uh, the the move into research software engineering for both of you. So, so, so first of all, we know that you both had careers working uh, as out and out scientists, as it were before moving more into research software engineering. So so maybe for our listeners, what, what kind of problems were, were you both working on originally, you know, in, in, in science as it were? Uh, yeah, so I started in, in solar physics, um, solar corona, so the, the outer bit where all the interesting stuff happens. <laughs> um, doing stuff with interaction of waves and particles, which was basically writing small 1D uh, simulation code to do wave and particle interactions. Um, that was my PhD. And I then kind of potted around the wave-particle interaction stuff in the magnetosphere and uh, other bits of the sun for a few years, um, and eventually um, started using this code called Epoch to do some of that, um, which is a code that does 
individual particles self-consistently and completely, whereas the things I've been doing before were based on, on distribution functions and involving mm. those. So after sort of picking up Epoch, I started using it substantially. Um, uh, Chris was helping me with that because at the time he was one of the, the lead lead developers. Um, and that was kind of it. I started needing to modify it a bit. And then, uh, as I say, in 2017, a job came up to be a maintenance coder on Epoch. And I applied for that and, and got it. And that was a joint it was between the Epoch code from CFSA at Warwick, a project in the maths department at Warwick, and the nascent then RSE group uh, under David Quigley um, to be an RSE, but to have this initial project to start on. Um, so that was pretty much what I did. You were a little more roundabout. Yeah, I had, I had a, a, a slightly bizarre so I started in solar physics as well, again, solar corona, but I was doing um, fluid simulations of waves in the solar corona. Um, after I'd done my PhD in that, I then, for some reason that to this day I don't know why, I decided I want to move to basically the middle of nowhere in Scotland, in St Andrews, <laughs> um, and, uh, and maintain a supercomputer up there. Um, which is odd because, you know, I was born in Birmingham, so I came from a big city and I had no background as a system administrator at that point. So You have been coding since the age of four. I had been coding oh, wow. since the age of four, yeah. My, my parents bought a BBC Micro back in the 80s, so um, I've been, I've been programming for a while, but I wasn't really a sysadmin. Um, but I went up there, did that job for a couple of years, and then um, my PhD supervisor, Tony Arbour in CFSA at Warwick, um, basically said that he wanted someone to come down and write a new code, this epoch code that Heather's mentioning, a start completely from scratch. And, well, I took that job, um, did that for a few years, and then I went back into being a scientist for a bit, um, but now in the area of laser-plasma interactions, um, which is kind of uh, cool because it means, you know, I've, I've, I've worked in that area. It's very interesting. I went to the National Ignition Facility in the U.S., you know, before they started it. So, you know, you could actually... Uh, sort of look into the target chamber, which you can't now. It's, it's too radioactive to look into. Yeah. <laughs> um, but um, but saw that. It does rather put you off um, Star Trek, because they use NIF as part of the engine room of the Enterprise in the new Star Trek films. It's just it's just disappointing mm. when you've ever been there. Yeah. Um, I mean, the Spider-Man films didn't put you off the sun. No, so. no, that's true. They, they <laughs> use solar physics in those, the, the Tobey Maguire ones. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so after I'd done all that, then the job, a job was just advertised to sort of start the RSE group at Warwick. Um, I applied for that. I got it. And yeah, after that, I've been doing this job, working on various projects. About three years now. About three years. Wow. Okay, yeah, very interesting. So um, let's talk about RSC a bit, research software engineering. It, in a nutshell, to, to you, to, to both of you, um, what is research software engineering? You know, what, what is it that you guys sort of do on a day-to-day -day basis? That's engineering research software. <laughs> um, it's, I mean, the, the intention is pretty much that there are many uh, software projects and people who require to do simulations and write code, and they're not, or it's not really fair to expect someone to be a cutting-edge academic and a 
cutting edge or at least up to date with the latest software technologies as well. So at least our conception of an RSE group is that we should be the ones who know how to code and know enough of the science to implement something that someone else says is interesting or important. Basically, it's all the stuff that currently gets done by postdocs who then often suffer from not having any papers because they're spending their time writing code. I mean, when you wrote Epoch, yeah. that was, what, three years without publication? Pretty much, yeah. I managed to squeeze myself onto a couple, but I'd be honest, I was slightly invoking friendships with people. You know, I was working on them, I was helping, but yeah, normally... Yeah, need you specifically yeah. would have been... Yeah, normally it would have been yeah. just so somebody else. Just that unfortunate niche, perhaps, where you can publish things still, but you won't ever be able to keep up with the cut or the rate of output that just a postdoc would. And you really yeah. need these simulations to be written well. Otherwise, as soon as the postdoc leaves, the simulation product dies. Yeah. It, it goes yeah. in the cupboard somewhere and it's gone. Or in some senses, the worst thing is it goes into a cupboard for five years until everyone forgets how it works, and then it comes out again and gets yeah. used. Uh, um, yeah, there's that element of sustainability then, isn't there? Yeah, definitely. This idea that yeah. things need to be things need to be useful not just now, but maybe in five years, ten years, twenty years time. Yeah. yeah. And that's always aided by just having other people involved. Yeah. There's a thing in software development called the bus number. How many people must be hit by a bus for this project to fail? Yeah. And if you think about most academic software projects, a lot of them, that number's one. If the main developer quits, the, the project is, is a whole pile of files that no one understands anymore. So, yeah. so that's the idea, and that's what we're working on. Yeah. Um, and that's a combination of, well, training people, because you're not supposed to be constantly there holding somebody's hand. Um we're supposed to be, or we're trying to be the, the thing where we can advise and guide and maybe occasionally fix errors and bugs yeah. and look at something and say, here's, here's where you've gone wrong or so on. Yeah. But, of course, you can't be a scientific specialist at the same time, so it's a balance of making sure that you and they understand the science and they and you understand the, the code side. Yeah. I mean, you did ask in the question sort of about the day-to-day -day thing, and yeah. so that sort of feeds through to this. So our, our days are a combination of writing training courses and planning training courses, um, actually writing software, though that probably only makes up about half of our hours, really, yeah. sat in a code editor. Um, and the rest, you know, big chunk of the rest of it is just meeting people, find out what they want, how do we help them, you know, sometimes through video meetings. It used to be in person. That was a lot better, but at the minute it's it's all it's over video, yeah. video conference. Um, but equally, you know, support forums and the like. Yeah, and then a, an element of keeping up to date and learning mm. new things, of course. Yes. I mean, I think my worst day ever, I used four different programming languages in quick succession, and that was quite tiring. Uh, yeah, I, I, I have experienced, uh, at one point um, earlier on this year, I had two things going on simultaneously in well I had I had I had three different languages going on at the same time and it does fry your brain doesn't it a little bit do I need a semicolon here or not <laughs> yep. even this, things like that yeah yeah yes, okay indeed. then yeah so so okay so so maybe um a question uh kind of directed at a more general audience so so what would you say 
are kind of the the differences between uh, the skill set of, of you guys, a research software engineer, and, and someone who works more in software engineering and industry? What what sort of um, you know, you've highlighted there that obviously you need the scientific knowledge. Are there any other kind of key differences that you would say are, are notable? I mean, so so I have sort of previously before uh, going down this route, I did work briefly as a, a software engineer in industry. That was a while ago and it has changed. But there's a handful of differences, but I'd say probably the single biggest one on a day to day basis um, is the sort of the way that we work together with other people to a very great degree in an industrial thing. It's a case of pulling things apart completely to the point that people can work on things completely independently. That's definitely a part of research software engineering. And that's going to be familiar to you guys after the uh, the PX915 experience, I'm sure. Yes. Um, but most of the time in an academic software development environment, it, the number of developers is quite small. In mm. some senses, it's quite the number of developers is quite small and the project can sometimes still be quite large and equally quite often the project can be quite performance critical. You know, if you're writing something that runs on a million cores, if you can gain 10%, that's saved you thousands of pounds, um, tens of thousands. Um, so a lot of industrial software development is based around the idea you split it up and you design the entire thing in a way that you can take off bits, people work on the bits, you put the bits in, it all plays together nicely and you get a finished product that works well. Um, Research software engineering, that's definitely a thing, as I say, but to a great degree, it's more one among other things. We don't have the, the, the you know, t development teams where we're trying to use all of the, the skill. You know, when, when they're there, obviously, that's a consideration. We have to, to work so that it does. But quite often, it's, it's more a case of you design it around the idea that the code is going to be written by a small group of people. And the primary consideration is quite often performance and correctness, obviously. But yeah, I think one of the other things you or we were thinking about with this is um, it's how things end. In most industrial projects, some things drag on for forever the same way, but generally there's at least boxed features or something that constitutes an end of a project. And in scientific terms, that's a lot less common because just about anything, either it doesn't work, at which point it gets ended, or it does, and then there will be always a cascade of new features or new capabilities or new architectures to get it to run on or anything. Yeah. It's probably rather more of a perpetual. Yeah. Yeah, you, you don't have a fixed release, do you? You have, you have more kind of people are working on particular problems, and as a result, things get added and... And, oh, that paper was interesting. Let's see if we can reproduce that and so on. Yeah, and that, that's definitely one of one of the many issues with current academic software development, actually. There should be releases or there should at least be um, uh, t stamped, um, tagged. identified, tagged yeah. states of a code. Because one of the issues with the reproducibility problem that people like to talk about is how do you know which code wrote this paper? Um so a lot of what we spend our time doing is teaching people things like version control and so on, not programming itself, but the things that you need to make sure that your research is robust, reproducible, 
all yep. the nice nice words that everyone likes to put on their grant proposals and things. Um, so releases really are important. They're just not quite the same. They're not shiny, boxed up, version numbered states. It's they are just just instances of something, maybe. Yeah. Pretty much. I mean, it's sort of a continuum scale. We we quite often work on what are called what are often called flagship projects, which are a lot closer to industrial environments than a lot of stuff researchers work on. But yeah, but I think that probably covers that it. probably covers it. Yeah, I sort of um, did. So well, went to go see someone who did predictive modelling for industry, and they described it as that in academia you sort of want to get as close to 100% towards the truly correct result as you can which obviously takes a lot of time and effort and these sort of bells and whistles and there's never really an end state whereas for what they were doing getting 80% of the way there and a result that was pretty good and you know worked most of the time if not all the time um, but that you could say okay this is done now and that was sort of in their opinion, a quite a big difference between academia and industry. Yeah. Yeah. That's definitely a thing as well. I mean, it doesn't affect us as developers as much as the other stuff. But and I mean, I know some people who sort of work in um, industrial science. You know, they, they do much the same sort of stuff that the research scientists do area wise. Um, and to a great degree, I think a large chunk of what they do is they need to be certain that what they're working on is the best agreed upon model it doesn't have to be right just so long as you can't point and say if you'd done that instead it would be it better, would be better. Mm. you know mm. you just use the model that's sort of best agreed upon so you know there are there are lots of of differences because obviously we do have very different sort of commercial i mean ultimately for both sides it's about getting money but academia we very much you go to the research council and go oh shiny new fancy interesting um, whereas, you know, if you're in an industrial world, you really are sort of, you, you do that for some things. I mean, you know, if you're developing an app, you want shiny, new and, and, and fascinating. But Yeah, but if you're doing engineering calculations, you want to use the tried and true methods and the tried and true packages. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. OK. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. OK, then. So maybe let's let, let, let's in the last kind of 10 minutes or so, let's maybe talk a bit more kind of nuts and bolts. So a really basic question then. What? programming languages do you guys use on a on a daily basis what 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 sort of languages do you write in most most frequently okay so for the core numerical stuff we are pretty much we like fortran specifically modern fortran we like c or c plus plus and we use some bits of python in particular things like numpy scipy um but on a combination of days we can use anything from actual so javascript um, Perl, yeah. Python, C, Fortran. I think we know quite a few. Don't yeah. really do anything uh, with the modern fancy languages, but that's just their yeah. hobby. They're an interesting hobby, but core would definitely be C and Fortran. Yeah, and some C++ as well, definitely. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. it. I think an awful lot of academic software development, even now, so there's, there's definitely Python, a lot of Python, but a lot of it's in the, the old sort of core three languages, Fortran, C, C++. Mm. OK, yeah, yeah. And of course, there's, there, there's, there are good reasons for doing so. So, so maybe then, um, 
you know, g- given given this given this age of, of uh, given that we live in this age of intercompatibility between languages, why is there still this need, do you think, for the modern developer to know uh, multiple languages? Is it to do with the fact that there's legacy code out there that you still want to edit, or are there are, are there more fundamental reasons than that? Do you think? So. I mean, the legacy thing is definitely a part of it. It's never a good idea to rewrite something just just for the sake of it. Uh, I seem to recall the TSB banking fiasco was an example of exactly when that goes wrong. Um, And some of it is just that different languages are better at different things, and they fit different things in a way that makes them easier for your mind to to write the program. Um, So, again, the reason we like Fortran is it's so natural with arrays. It's got them built right into the language and they work and they work in a way that, that makes sense. Yeah. On the other hand, if you're trying to do a large piece of code, maybe you want to use something like object oriented style, at which point you'll definitely turn to C++ because in spite yeah. of what some people think, <laughs> Fortran object orientation is a bit of a mess. It's not you... brilliant. It's not brilliant. Yeah. It's got problems. Um, but it does exist. Yeah. And then things like Python just have such a strong library infrastructure that if someone's written a good package to do what you need to do, that's where you might want to turn. Um, And that's, of course, leaving aside the domain-specific or semi-domain-specific languages like, say, R for statistics um, or JavaScript if you're working in a browser and trying to write a web app or something. And, I mean, there's a few other um, things in the same sort of line. So, Computers now are so powerful that you don't think in terms of having to use the sort of tricks that people did in the, the 70s and 80s anymore. But there are plenty of embedded systems out there that are programmed in C, you know, things that are Arduinos or things like them that are out there doing real work. And you can't afford much overhead. You know, you could write that in Fortran, but quite often you really are sort of, you know, poke this particular memory address. And that's just easier in C. Mm. OK, yeah, yeah. Interesting. So, so maybe, maybe, maybe something more more specific to uh, the kind of scientific computing then. So, so, so you talked about kind of performance and 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 making a code as fast as possible. For kind of a, a, a general listener, can you describe maybe what you what we mean by code optimization, just at a very high level? You know, what what does code optimization and, and making code performance really mean? Ultimately, our golden rule for making things perform better is to somehow find a way to do less. (laughs) Computers have a clock in there. They can do a finite number of operations in any fixed time. What you're looking for is to make sure it needs to do less. That's the only way to make it faster. And that can be anything from actually changing an algorithm, um, changing how you do the calculation to make it happen quicker. If you imagine... uh, if you're looking someone up in the phone book, you don't start at the A's and run through till you find them. You flick back and forth and try and home in on where they are. And that's that's the basic example of how you actually optimize a search. If you've got data in order, you try and home in by splitting in half and in half again the area you're looking. Uh, beyond that, what you're trying to do is make the same thing happen in less steps. So a really old school thing you'll see sometimes is instead of... Uh, times 2 divided by 3, you'll see times 0.66 or the like, saving one whole operation, ooh, one whole operation, but it used to matter. 
Sometimes it still does. Yeah. It's things like pre-calculating something and keeping it around as a trade-off in having more stuff to store, but less stuff to calculate. Basically, yeah, make it, make it do less stuff and it will happen faster and that will save you time. You'll get your results sooner. It'll save you money if you're buying that time. And it'll make everyone like you because you spend less, <laughs> less of the precious resources and, and more work gets done. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so you mentioned there. Um, you, you know, it, it, you're talking about conserving resources. Given kind of a, a typical modern supercomputer, um, how, how much money are we talking? You know, to run one of these machines for an hour if I'm using its full capacity. Huh. What, what, ah. How much do they they cost? Well, I mean, I'll let you do the costs, but they cost surprisingly little more to run than they do to sit idle. And that's part of the other side of the challenge uh, for the people who run them. But, yeah, roughly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a bit difficult to sort of work out. Uh, roughly, every single one of the, as a rough back of the envelope, you can say that every single one of the computers that make up a modern machine will run about a kilowatt um, per the entire machine will be made up of several thousand, you know, a few thousand of those nodes, depending on the exact, you know, the, on the larger end, but the exact number depends. So uh, you're talking quite... You, you, it's actually surprising to, to work out this. Well, it's one of those things. It's all done through accounting identities. The actual machines, you're paying for more than just the cost of plugging them in at the wall. Uh, it also isn't helped by the fact that you have to air condition or somehow cool the rooms that are in. So almost all the power you put in, you have to get out again. So Archer, the EPSRC supercomputer, would say that for an hour on a single node, a single computer, costs you about 20p. Yeah. But Archer is one of the computers aimed at running many nodes, tens, dozens, hundreds. Yeah. So the cost pretty quickly adds up then. Yeah. It does, and that's their uh, notional cost. So. Yeah, so that includes the electricity and, you know, the amortised cost of the sysadmin salaries and things like that. You're taught, you, you easily run to hundreds of pounds an hour, and if not thousands. Right. Uh, and the more, the more sort of high-end the machine is, the more they cost, because you need more specialised people to run them and other things. Okay, yeah, yeah. Right. And then um, I'm, I'm acutely aware that we don't have that much time left, but I do have one final question that I think may be, uh, may be of interest to people who, may, who, who don't work in such a such sort of a high performance computing environment. And it's a very simple one. Um, if I if I take my ordinary Python code that I've written to do a simple task, why can't why can't I simply put it on a computer a thousand times bigger and run it a thousand times faster? Why is there subtlety in that task? I know that's a big question, but as a, you know, as a, as a brief explanation, why is parallelism hard? <laughs> because, um, all right, well, doing something like that requires you do one of two things. Either you've got something that can be split up into that thousand tasks and all run independently, at which point you maybe could do what you're, you're thinking there. Um, you'd still have a little bit of, of overhead cost, but you can do it. But for most problems, those thousand tasks are interconnected. Each of them can do a bit of work and then they'll have to stop and wait for their neighbours and then they'll have to 
somehow get information from their neighbours and you'll need to keep everything running actually together in, in lockstep. It can't just run all off independently. And to do that, sadly, there is still no automatic way to achieve that. You have to write code that does it. Um, and there's not always the opportunity. And even when no. there is, it's actually a lot more work to be able to do it. Um, I mean, the sort so. of, one of the classic examples is in sort of writing computer games where you think, oh, it's nice and easy. But actually, you're waiting for somebody's input. You can't start doing the next set of tasks until somebody's given you, you know, what they're going to do, what key they're going to press. So you can have as many processes as you'd like out there, but you can't actually have them do work um, because the work isn't, um, you know, doesn't naturally split up. You know, you've got the one task triggered by someone pressing a key. And what do you do with the rest of them? Yeah, of course, that comes up a lot in video games. Modern yeah. video games have access to an eight-core computer. Mostly, they just can't use it. They can use maybe one to run their graphics yeah. background CPU rendering. They can use one to ask a user things. And then what else do they do? Yeah. Um, but the other side of that question is, will somebody please think of the squirrels? <laughs> um, it's actually it's <laughs> ecological. I find it somewhat interesting that in spite of all the focus on being more green, people don't spot that using something like Python, where you could use much faster, more efficient C code, is wasting electricity. It's using stuff it really doesn't need to use, and maybe if you're thinking of making your stuff green and earth-friendly, that's actually something that you should be bearing in mind. Don't burn CPU cycles just needlessly. Yeah. Okay. No, yeah, very interesting. Yeah, a very intuitive answer there. Okay. Well, I think, sadly, that's us just about out of time. Um, so I'm going to say thank you to Kat for co-hosting. Um, and thanks to you, Chris and Heather, for, for coming along and participating. That was a really interesting discussion. Thank you. Nice to be thank here. You. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. We hope that you enjoyed that discussion with Chris and Heather. Next time, we hope to bring you an interview with Dr. James Sprittles from the Maths Department here at Warwick. Until next time, goodbye! <laughs>